0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we have Kim Jensen on the show. Her book, Mobilizing Minerva, American Women in the First World War, has just appeared from the University of Illinois Press. We're very happy to have Kim on the show today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we have Kim Jensen on the show. Her book, Mobilizing Minerva, American Women in the First World War, has just appeared from the University of Illinois Press. We're very happy to have Kim on the show today, not only because she is a distinguished historian, but also because she's a graduate of the PhD program here at the University of Iowa. I enjoyed talking to Kim about Mobilizing Minerva, and I learned a lot about women in the First World War. I suspect you'll do the same. Here's the interview. Hi, Kim. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm very well. How are you doing? Uh, I'm pretty well. You know, the weather here is uh, beautiful in Iowa, Um, uh, kind of extraordinarily beautiful. It's been a very cool spring, but we're doing pretty well. As long as it stays cool this summer, I'll be okay. How is it in Oregon?
1: Oregon has had a rainy uh, spring, which is not surprising, but we've had beautiful days in between. This is one of them. It's just
0: gorgeous. That's great. I know Oregon is beautiful. I've spent some time there myself. Um, I should say to the listeners, today we have Kim Jensen on the show and we'll be talking with her about mobilizing Minerva, American Women, in the First World War, and it's just come out from uh, the University of Illinois Press. Is that right? University of Illinois? Do I remember that right? Yeah. I do. Yeah. Uh huh. And, uh, Kim teaches at Western Oregon University, and she's in, uh, history and gender studies there. Um, Kim, why don't you begin by telling our listeners just a little bit about yourself? I'd be
1: delighted to. Uh, I was born and grew up in Denver, Colorado, and, uh, I found myself uh, at the time that I was, uh, young and an adolescent, really very interested in the women's movement. I was born in 1958, and mm-hmm. so, um, I, my consciousness as a, as a human being was also at a time when there were many very important movements, of course, in the yeah. United States, and the feminist movement was, uh, certainly a part of that. And, uh, I, also uh connected fairly early on uh in a in terms of thinking historically uh with my grandmother who mm-hmm. uh had been um trained as a nurse and had herself been mm-hmm. involved in the Red Cross in the First World War and really thought a lot about those kinds of connections uh with uh, the movements that were happening uh as I was a young uh-huh. person and, and so um I was always very interested in history but I, I think uh thinking about how I might how I might work out a feminist identity and so history was a very important way of coming to terms with uh the condition of women and, and mm-hmm. my my situation and, and thinking about that. Mm-hmm. So um I knew very much that I wanted to study history. I wanted to study women's history. I did my graduate work with Linda Kerber. Oh. I wanted very much to study with her at the University of Iowa. Mm-hmm. But uh, I wasn't quite sure that the, you know, I knew I wanted to do United States history, but I took a seminar uh, on women in war uh, with Linda. Mm-hmm. And that was the, origin, really, of being able to connect my own grandmother's experience Mm -hmm. with uh, my own research. And so um, I started, at that point, uh, doing research on women nurses Mm -hmm. uh, and their experience, and there was just uh, an incredible amount of material one could uh, look at at, uh, individual-based hospitals or Mm -hmm. could try to chart leaders or try to think about that. So I, I started early with that, and and then uh, tried to think about other groups of women in that conflict that might might be interesting to study, or might be fruitful to study, and Mm -hmm. the thing that was um, clear as well was that this was a time period in the United States in which uh, the movement for suffrage was coming to its final years, Mm -hmm. and although the participants didn't know that, (laughs) there were many states that had we, you know, had had achieved women had achieved suffrage in a number of states prior to World War One. So, uh-huh. ideas about citizenship and even citizenship beyond the vote—what does that mean for women? Yeah. Um, what they were working this out for themselves, and and you know, and so the war came at that particular time. So, my sense was that there were some interesting questions that we could ask about. Um, Women's participation in the war that would also relate to their ideas about citizenship. And so that was really, uh, the origin of, of this particular study. I added, uh, women physicians mm-hmm. and, uh, I was able to study, uh, the archives of what used to be the, um, Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. It's mm-hmm. now, uh, the Drexel University College of Medicine Archives and, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I was able to to uh, initially get a grant to study there and then complete mm-hmm. some additional work on uh, the women-at-arms that eventually
0: would mm-hmm. be a part of this study as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were much more focused than I was very early on. <laughs> I couldn't it, tell it, you that. <laughs> you no,
2: know,
1: But I think that what I, you know, and particularly at the time that I was working on my dissertation, which was the late 80s and early 90s, there was a... There were studies that were coming out about uh, Barbara Steinson's work, for example, on women in the war, focused on uh, women in the peace movement and, and you know women who were preparing for war. Uh-huh. There were people sort of just cataloging the, you know, hundreds of thousands of women uh, in the U.S. and in other uh, warring nations that participated in what this meant. And so, uh-huh. you no, know, my early work was really, you know, trying to find as many women as possible. And, and so... Uh, my uh, continuing work uh, focused and began to also really ask questions about what did they think when they were um, calling for participation in the military? Did they want to shape their place in the military in some way or their place in, in war? Did they want to help to redefine what war meant or to address particularly the ways in which war uh the first world war uh brought violence to women, whether it was uh women civilians in the path of war or uh intimate or domestic violence at home or uh gender based uh hostility and yeah. hostile environment in the workplace. So that those kinds of threads uh certainly came later as I was working on revising the study. So it's been a uh a study that I've worked on for a long time but yeah. also I think has been um I've had a chance to to try to deepen um deepen the analysis Mm by asking some additional kinds of
0: questions. Well, you've done a terrific job, and I hope you find a wide readership. Before we actually launch into a discussion of the three groups you deal with in the general context, um, could you uh, put the book in a broader kind of historiographical context? I I was wondering what had been written about American women during the First World War prior to your study. This is not my field, I should say. I study something very obscure. (laughs) But could you uh, name a Few of the people that were influential, or what was known about women in the world in, in World War One, that kind of thing.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, Barbara Steinson's work, um, "American Women's Activism in World War One," was published in 1982. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, her focus was activism and looking at women in the peace movement and uh, women who. Um, Joined various organizations um certainly uh... her work is was really pioneering and that that came two years after linda kerber's work on uh... women of the Republican uh-huh. thinking about women's citizenship and, and relationship to the state so there's also the broader uh... historiographic mm-hmm. context of of women in citizenship and and and, and wartime mm-hmm. um... there uh, Certainly uh, Kathleen Kennedy's work uh, that uh, looks at the challenges, what happened to women who did not support the war and who uh, challenged uh, the militarism of the war was very important. This is disloyal mothers and scurrilous citizens, uh-huh. women in subversion during World War I. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, her her work really drew upon Steinsen's idea of patriotic motherhood and Mm -hmm. that uh, that became um, an iconic role for for women and Mm -hmm. indeed uh, women who deviated from that were uh, harassed or imprisoned or Mm -hmm. lost work and so forth. So Mm -hmm. she uh, also really uh, contributed to that. And so uh, Kim Nielsen's work um, on uh, un-american womanhood anti-radicalism uh-huh. and anti-feminism also provided another view of uh... women whose, whose activism was uh... not not toward feminist citizenship in, in the regular sense or in the, in the sense we're dealing with and then also um... Susan Zeiger's work in Uncle Sam's service uh... was a look at women workers uh... with the American uh-huh. Expeditionary Force uh-huh. and so. Um her view was particularly to look at how women were part of the military workforce, so it included nurses, it included women who worked with the signal corps and mm-hmm. and thinking about uh in her conclusion sort of the meaning of that service
2: mm-hmm.
1: um so that's there's a, a, a an important tradition in the yeah. United States, and then also of course a very important tradition uh in thinking about. Uh, women in other belligerent nations. And Mm so, uh, you know, the anthology on women in the first, the uh, two world wars Mm -hmm. and sort of beyond that and looking at um, the work of um, many women who are looking at uh, how motherhood, how maternalism, how uh, challenges to women's uh, citizenship Mm And reinscribed
0: after the First World War as well. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting because there does uh, seem to be quite a literature on this topic, and I was uh, completely unaware of it. One of the great things about doing this podcast is I get to read outside my discipline, and I get to discover all these sort of rich <laughs> veins like this one of people that are discussing, you know, topics that uh, I, I knew next to nothing about. Um, So let's turn directly to the book itself and maybe you can um, set it up by answering a question that I had and is in fact answered in the book and that is what did Americans in general I'm asking you to speculate just a little bit here think about women's participation in what we might generally call martial activities at the onset of the First World War? Uh, I think that
1: there was a great deal of suspicion and, um, in many ways, confusion on the part of Americans at large about the implications of women participating in martial activities. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nurses could be cast as nurturing women even uh, members of a, a religious tradition, if you will, sure. uh, so that they could be cast and had been cast as nurturers in the Clara Barton-Florence-Nightingale yeah, battlefield. Exactly. Women were not threatening because they were there to do women's work. Mm-hmm. And uh, women's physicians had had been a, a part of wartime as contract surgeons and so forth. Mm-hmm. There were... Because the United States entered the conflict later, uh, one of the interesting things about American popular culture is that we can try to get a sense and try to gauge some of the reactions to women as soldiers or women as combatants because there were reports of Serbian women, of Russian women, of German women uh, who were a part of that. Prior to the United States entry, mm-hmm. so
0: so there was commentary what, about these things before the United States entered. Authority. Yeah, that's who, interesting. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, who were there, and so uh, and that's also the case. And and part of my study looks at the popular reaction in the United States to the Russian Women's Battalion of Death as a, <laughs> not just individual women soldiers, but uh, groups of women, and so. In some ways, um, individual women were explained in ways that were acceptable so that they they were fighting for their fallen husband or mm-hmm. they were um, look looking for a brother on the battlefield and mm-hmm. there were many narratives that arose to to help explain that but they they were also narratives about patriotism mm-hmm. and so in some ways, those individual women not. All women who would follow them, but those individual women uh, could could find um, an accepted place because mm-hmm. they because of the way in which their activities were explained. Mm-hmm. And in many many cases, and this is certainly true of the Battalion of Death from uh, from uh, Moscow and, and also in Kiev. But as the United States. Um, Learned about this as popular magazines and newspapers are reporting about them, they were seen as shaming uh, men into service. And so that was therefore a a patriotic duty.
0: Yeah, if you could talk, yeah, I was going to say, if you could talk just a little bit about the Battalion of Death. I am a sometimes Russian historian myself, and I I had heard of the Battalion of Death. There were similar sorts of things during World War II. But if you could just say a few words about it and the American reaction to it, I think the that we'd all be interested in hearing about it. That's quite a name in the Battalion of Death.
1: Well, uh, essentially, um, there were uh, a number of women's regiments, and they emerge at a particular point uh, in uh, Revolutionary Russia and essentially to support the Kerensky regime yeah. and to try to uh continue uh the uh Russian presence in World War One mm-hmm. of course before before revolution uh continues and mm-hmm. so forth and, and civil war begins. And so they represent, I think, to an American audience, and certainly the, the commentary is there, uh women who are urging men to participate and in fact their participation is to Shame yeah. uh, Russian men into fighting. And so uh, their leader, uh, Bochkareva, made a U.S. tour. She had an autobiography. Mm. There's a lot of press about her. And um, the lessons seemed to be, for the uh, journals and the newspapers that I found, uh, the lessons seemed to be that at a time when in the United States there were also questions about of uh, the United States participation and uh, increasingly uh, concerns about that, and, and so a conflict there. They represented uh, one mode of women's patriotism, mm-hmm. uh, which would be to fight not because you want to redefine what it means to be a woman, but because you're using uh, your womanhood. To get men to fulfill their role of being protectors.
0: I see. But there wasn't any call in the United States to form, even during the war, a American battalion of death or to put uh, arms into the hands of uh, female units? Was there anything like that?
1: Well, um, part of what I address in the book is that there were a number of, uh, quite a few actually, uh, of. Women's rifle clubs, women's yep. defense groups, and so forth. And these really emerged during the, um, uh, during the preparedness phase. Yeah, the run-up to the war. About, yeah, About that, prior to the conflict. Uh-huh. And so uh, there were, uh, for example, the American Women's League of Self-Defense had infantry drill in New York and had a cavalry drill. And uh-huh. there were other groups that... Uh, not only wanted to um, teach women how to shoot and how to march, but also really that sense that um, should and this relates also to how the United States looked at the war in Europe and the idea that Belgium had been in, Belgium had been invaded, northern France had been invaded there was discussion that. You know, these men had failed their women. They were right. not acting as the protectors that they should have, or at least in the minds of those who are writing about it. And so um, there is a sense that perhaps if the war should come to the United States, uh, that you know, men might similarly fail here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There's a powerful subtext here, which is that uh, women may also be able to defend themselves against intimate violence or domestic violence.
0: Who was who responsible for the notion that the Belgian or French men had failed their women?
2: There, there were... I mean, it's,
0: it's very interesting in the sense that it can't really have been true. <laughs> you see what I mean? Of course. Of course. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: but there was a sense that, again, um, wartime... It's such an interesting paradox. The First World War offered the possibility to challenge traditional gender roles, yeah. but also to... We inscribed the idea of the protector and the protected. Uh-huh. And so, uh, there were, there was a lot of discussion. Part of that has to do with the, um, very powerful and there's just a lot of the, a lot of this discussion about the rape of Belgium, uh, atrocity tales. Certainly as we look uh, back uh, over the space of about a hundred years, yes, rapes happened, but it was also the case that there was a great deal of uh, atrocity making uh, for the purposes of you know, creating the
0: enemy. Yeah, and actually, I, enemy. I found this part of the book very very uh, enlightening actually because I had been taught that the rape of Belgium and the uh, rape of Belgian women by the German forces was entirely made up by um, the allied propagandists. But I guess there's some new research that shows that this isn't quite right, that actually there's a basis in reality yes, to some of these claims.
1: That's certainly the case. And I also think that as we um, as we look for, for example, uh, one of the uh, physicians that um, whose work I look at in the book is named Esther Cole Lovejoy. And she... Wrote uh, about her experiences in investigating. She was sent essentially by the Medical Women's National Association, mm-hmm. the Council, Women's Council Committee on the Council of National Defense, to go to France with the Red Cross on sort of their investigative mission in the fall of 1917 mm-hmm. and to try to determine the situation, particularly for women and children and civilians, but mm-hmm. also there was a sense among women physicians that they wanted to see, you know, can we send women over to assist? Can women physicians go? Uh, this was also part of their uh, push to gain commissions in the military But mm-hmm. simultaneously they were forming these all-female units. Mm-hmm. But, it, but Lovejoy's um, visit to uh, northern France and to Paris had a number. There were a number of results of that, and one of them was that she um, worked with refugees. Uh, she went to to Avian and to some of the other mm-hmm. places where refugees were being uh, repatriated. And so her interviews and her discussion with women uh, was certainly um, important in her articulating the idea that yes, rape had happened, but it was also um hers was a view that uh, rape is not only um, a, a German soldier coming in uh, to a community and, and uh, sexually assaulting someone, but also women lost agency. They lost
2: mm-hmm. control
1: of their bodies and their condition when they were impoverished and mm-hmm. they were living in a, in a city of occupation mm-hmm. and perhaps... Uh, forming a relationship with a German soldier was a way to survive, and that might Uh include um, sexual services. So, I think she was thinking about that. A a number of uh, international leaders were. Jane Adams talked about it. Mm -hmm. Lila Rep's work uh, on international women also suggests that women activists were were talking about it. It was not they don't always use the language and they didn't always um, use the language rape, but they they talked about Women's victimization, but mm-hmm. to your point, uh, a number of historians have tried to address this issue, and and, and particularly locating that uh, locating that within um, the context of the First World War. I think mm-hmm. it's important not to um, say. When war happens, rape always happens. But to mm-hmm. try to think about the specific ways and reasons why that was the case, or if it was the case, why that particular time period. Yeah, so,
0: the the only reason yeah. I mentioned is, as I said, I was I was taught that it was entirely a okay. kind of the the product of, of Allied propaganda. So, you know, because that was yes. the moment at which propaganda was uh, invented. Although I, I would have to say, you know, uh, rape and war seem to unfortunately go together. Um, so I'd be surprised that there weren't if there weren't some of it. But in any case, let's go on to talk about the three groups that you deal with uh, in the book, that is the doctors, the nurses, and the women at arms. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about each of them and how you investigated them?
1: Yes. Um, The first group I'll characterize as women at arms, and um, I began to uh, learn about them uh, reading (laughs) women's magazines, Mm -hmm. ironically, (laughs) uh, such as The Delineator, which was the uh, sewing pattern book in popular women's magazines. Really? Wow. And with Housekeeping and some of the the other uh, uh, magazines, to see about the topics there and and what those might uh, reveal. And interestingly, these were uh, women present in the pages of these women's magazines. And in fact, The Delineator um raised the editor of the uh, delineator, Erman Ridgeway, raised the question of women's military preparedness uh-huh. in nineteen fifteen in, in the in uh, the delineator. So it's part of this preparedness um activity. But I think that my sense is looking at those uh sources, also I I looked at a variety of newspapers and also the um journal of the American Rifle Association it was mm-hmm. called Arms and the Man <laughs> yeah. and across their pages there are women who are forming gun clubs defense groups some uh women workers uh formed them as well and uh-huh. advertisers were also uh representing uh women who were
2: uh-huh.
1: uh, taking up arms and, and and marketing to them uh literally and um so um, across the across these sources, um, you know, just a, a very long list of, of these women's organizations. Some of them were gun clubs. Some of them had a a more expansive program of military drill and training. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, um, this is true. There are women who do this in Canada. There are women who are doing this in in Great Britain. This is mm-hmm. voluntary auxiliary. So uh, the United States is not new. But some of these women linked this to home defense, to defensiveness. In fact, Lerana Shelton, who was uh, the leader of one of these groups, said that, you know, we're not going to be helpless as the Belgian women were. Right. And ourselves, if yeah. men fail us. So they're articulating and, and, and making that link. But also saying that perhaps they might be a women's army. there were reports that there were some regiments of women shooting that wanted to you know offer their services to the military. June Houghton's group did. And of course, they weren't accepted, but their their motives were complicated. And I think uh, I believe that they saw this as a patriotic act, but also uh, a way to Define themselves as women who could defend themselves mm-hmm. from violence should they encounter it, and they were not. Uh, they didn't make uh, distinctions really between violence from so-called enemies and violence from
2: mm-hmm.
1: more intimate violence and, and domestic violence.
0: And how were they looked upon by the wider culture? How are they treated in the mainstream press?
1: Uh, the mainstream press reported on them. The New York Times, for example, reported on the American Women's League for Self-Defense. They, again, and I, I, uh, so going back to, say, Kathleen Kennedy's work about women who were accused of subverting patriotism and who were considered dangerous, this, you know, in some ways, these women used arguments of patriotism and used arguments of you know gaining useful skills should the nation be invaded
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, as a way to legitimize their activities mm-hmm. and so uh there were some um, uh, there were there were some uh sort of straight reporting, but also there was a lot of ridicule mm-hmm. and uh particularly when you combine that with the um construction of the female soldier, the Russian Women's Battalion of Death. They were ridiculed. Um, There was, and uh, I'm thinking about Linda Hart's work about how lesbians are associated with violence, and so there was a a great deal of representation of uh, women as Uh, lesbians Mm -hmm. or those who might become, uh, involved in same sex, uh, relationships because of their military service. Mm -hmm. A lot of the representations of female soldiers became, um, very negative and focused on their sexuality, whether it was Mm -hmm. heterosexuality, meaning that they would be dangerous on the battlefield because they were, they would be engaged in heterosexual, uh, or uh, that they might be dangerous because they would not need men, and that they would uh, be involved in in uh, same-sex affairs and so forth. So they were uh, managed in many ways in mm-hmm. this very strong backlash against the female soldier in Russia. The female soldiers in the United States uh, came in for that same uh, backlash. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Neurologist Graham Hammond talked about you know that they were. Uh, you know they were, um, you know, really um, distorted, and that they were, you know, that they deserved the violence. That they were, they deserved the violence that they uh, might, uh, might initiate. Get, but, yeah. Yeah.
2: How
0: how are they seen by other women in the suffrage movement? Not to say that they themselves were in the suffrage movement, but how did the suffrage movement look on them?
1: Uh, If you look at uh, some of the the, uh, responses in the suffrage press, the woman Citizen, for example, uh, the woman Citizen for a long time had uh, presented the individual accomplishments of women. So initially, there are some reports of this, but they're not... um, By 1918, they're not reporting about these women. And, Mm -hmm. And so I think that suffragists, particularly if you think of... Uh, the mainstream NASA and Carrie Chapman Cat, uh for expediency, uh, left her uh, anti war activities and directed NASA and the mainstream organization to activities that would be supportive of the war. And so, in as much as these activities could be brought within that purview, uh, you know, that mm-hmm. was they would support, but early on there are statements such as, you know, these are women soldiers put to rest the argument that, you know, if women don't wear arms they can't vote, and so they're using that as, again, uh, embracing that as part of the definition of a full female citizenship. Does
0: anybody anybody support that argument? I mean, in the broader culture, do people say, yes, well, you're absolutely right. If, you know, these two things are linked, and so we should actually, you know, bring women into the military if we're going to give them the right to vote.
1: Well, um, one of the uh, important things that Kristen Hoganson's work about uh, imperialism and the Spanish-American War and gender issues, one of the important things that her work does is to locate a resurgence of the argument about equating bullets and ballots uh, with the Spanish-American War uh-huh. and the United States imperialism. And so the argument was um, had been renewed uh, at that time, and so it was definitely uh, a part of the discussion of suffrage prior to World War One. Uh-huh. And so there are uh, a number of women, into, and uh, uh, who say being part of the military is part of a fuller female uh,
0: citizenship. Citizenship, yeah. And,
1: but it is not necessarily that they're arguing for armed combat. This is the argument that women physicians make for why they should have. Commissions in the military medical corps on an equal basis with men uh-huh. uh, nurses are asking for rank, so there are certainly a number of groups that are are calling for inclusion of women in the institution of the military, but that also has to do with professional equality mm-hmm. uh, economic equality and and you know sort of recognizing their um their professional uh, credentials as much as their uh, as women.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about actually the just as background the institutional role that women played in the military in mm, let's say 1915 or 1916. Uh, what what sorts of roles could women play in the armed forces in the United States?
1: The, arm, the Army Nurse Corps was created and established in 1901, following the Spanish-American War, mm-hmm. and prior to that there had been a a nurse corps that had been part of the Union forces, Confederate was was federated, but those were linked specifically to the conflict. There was not um, an institutional role for women in the military. So they were going to
0: they were going uh, to uh, time out at the end of the conflict. In other words,
1: right? Okay. And so, for the Spanish American War, for example, women served as civilian. Con- they were. They were still civilians, they were contract workers, mm-hmm. uh, so you'd have a, a contract for a length of time with the military. So it's clear that that was a temporary relationship, they and there had, were no right. promises of rank or equal pay or anything like that.
0: Exactly. They had no rank at all. They weren't inductees. That's, and That's
1: right. actually, yeah. they were contractors.
0: Yeah, right. Okay.
1: They would contract their services. I see. So
0: okay. So
1: they were, theirs was a there was as much distance from them and and an official military role as possible.
2: I see, okay. Anita
1: McGee, who was herself a physician, became the first director of the Army Nurse Corps in 1901, and -hmm. so that institutional place was established, but nurses, even after 1901, did not have um, rank in that military system that depended on that. So um, that was really the beginning, and then... um, women were um, hired as, uh, you know, members of, of the Signal Corps. The Army became an employer, if you will, yeah. during World War One, and, and this is where Susan uh, Zyger's work is really great. Mm-hmm. But in terms of nursing, then, women, they were the only women that the, the Army had really recognized as mm-hmm. being and, and, and uh, as, as part of the institution of the military when the United States uh, mm-hmm. began to prepare for the conflict, mm-hmm. uh, There had been some women who had served as contract nurses who were physicians.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Anita McGee is an the example there. And so there had been a few women physicians, but uh, again, on that ad hoc basis. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, nurses have the it's a small foundation, but they have really the only foundation upon which to build.
0: I see. And they argued that they should receive official rank. Is that correct? Or at least some of them did. They
1: did. They did. And uh, there was a great call. Uh, In fact, there were many many shortages of nurses during the First World War. And then, of course, in the fall of 1918, with the influenza pandemic, uh, there were crucial shortages of nurses. And so um, it's in the there is a great deal of support from suffragists such as Harriet Stanton Blatch, Helen Hoy Greeley, who mm-hmm. became the legal counsel for the committee to secure rank for nurses. So there were nursing leaders and suffrage leaders and rank and file nurses who supported the call for rank uh, in the military. They were asking for officer status uh, within the military. So mm-hmm. that was a campaign that was conducted. By nursing leaders outside of the military, by suffragists who equated um, nurses' uh, work in the military, they equated that with their own voteless status. You know, mm-hmm. they, they felt that nurses also did not have an official place; they were not officially recognized. So mm-hmm. there was resonance there, and so this is another example of suffragists supporting. Uh, women's call for the military rank. And so the campaign lasted uh, across the conflict and after the conflict in 1920, uh, nurses received relative rank. But my uh, research focused particularly on the response of rank-and-file nurses, particularly after they returned home. Mm-hmm. And they linked... Um, they they linked their call for military rank to what they identified as what we would call a hostile workplace or a yeah. discrimination that's happening there. Mm-hmm. So um they they saw that if they were to enter the military that they also wanted to shape the military and address the violence that they saw happening in a in a hostile workplace. So they mm-hmm. talked about um male members of the medical corps, whether it be, you know, the corpsmen, the orderlies, or or the surgeons, as um, taking liberties with them, or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in one great phrase, treating it as a Coney Island dance hall. They were mm-hmm. talking about, you know, they were talking about a hostile environment, and so um, some nurses believed that RANK would help them and help create a safer workplace. There was a tremendous shift during the war as base hospitals that have been organized uh, stateside. Suddenly you have new personnel, you know, leaders come and go, and the cohesion that you might have had, uh, you know, before that is all gone. So there was a a really vulnerable workplace there. So many rank-and-file nurses support the idea of of, uh, military rank a number of them are concerned that rank would separate them from the enlisted men with whom they associated if they Mm -hmm. were officers they couldn't associate with enlisted men Mm -hmm. and a lot of them felt that military rank really wouldn't solve the problem of of a hostile workplace but my one of the things that i wanted to emphasize in this study is that they were the discussion was happening and particularly was happening as nurses returned home and they were demobilized and mm-hmm. they were no longer planning to be in the military themselves and so they felt freer to comment and to mm-hmm. you know raise a position to become active uh, in this campaign because mm-hmm. they were they were out of the military but they knew that nurses would continue to be a part of that and I think they wanted to address that for nurses as a whole institutionally. Mm
2: -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. And could you tell us a little bit about the doctors then? Now, they wanted commissions, as I understood, right?
1: Um, Yes, the the Medical Women's National Association, had been formed in
0: 1915. I have to say, by the, by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I have to say, and again, my ignorance is on my sleeve, I was amazed that there were, you say, 6,000 female doctors yes, in the United States. At the time. I had no idea that there were any female doctors at the time.
2: Well,
1: uh, <laughs> I recommend Regina yeah, Right.
0: I'm the always amazed science. at the it's things I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know. I just had no idea.
1: But so. I also think that, again, here again, women um, physicians had... In the United States, and this is certainly true in the work that I've seen in, for example, in Great Britain, uh, that women physicians were receiving, uh, they were being legitimized because public health, social medicine, uh, those those were uh, programs that were certainly part mm-hmm. of the United States Progressive mm-hmm. Era, so sure. yeah. public health nursing sure. and, uh, you know, City health offices are, are addressing outbreaks of disease and they're immunizing people and mm-hmm. inspecting schools, clean water, clean food, you know, right. in Sinclair in the jungle. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense, I mean, their women physicians uh, believe that they have really been achieving uh, professional legitimacy. So, yes, the almost 6,000 and the Medical Women's National Association. Uh, in their convention in 1917, forms a war service committee, and their strategy was first of all to conduct a registration, uh, and this had two purposes. First, it would demonstrate how many you know it would demonstrate how many women physicians were out there, and that they were a force to be reckoned with. Uh-huh. While 6,000 is not a lot. In terms of the profession, they were uh, you know approaching something like six, seven percent, but also to show that women physicians were prepared, that they they could uh, be called upon by the nation
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that they wanted to engage in this service. But also, it it kind of acted as a petition to the War Department that, you know, they wanted this service. So Mm -hmm. there's a tremendous amount of activity around the country among particularly organized medical women who are part of these societies to Mm -hmm. complete this registration and to to, um, show the government that they were there and ready. And actually, this is a, uh, it's published as the Census of Women Physicians, and I did a you know, I do a statistical analysis of that and try to What a to great source though, and isn't it
0: though? I mean that's just a fantastic it a source. Book. It's amazing. I would just uh, I envy you very much <laughs> <laughs> for having a source like that. Go but
1: ahead, there I'm were sorry. also, you know, so this was kind of a this was kind of a larger effort. There were also local efforts so that for uh Portland, Oregon women just presented their credentials at the Vancouver Washington barracks and said, you know, we're here to enlist
2: uh-huh.
1: and um Mary Bates and her Colorado women's group eventually created kind of a national test case that I talked uh-huh. about. And so part of what makes this effective is that there's the Medical Women's Journal that's reaching all these medical women. They're in communication with one another. There are local societies. And so, you know, this, the, their prior organization and their prior work in kind of organizing together with other community organizations like the Consumers League and passing legislation. They have that network in place so they can
2: Uh word out
1: about this. Anyway, they um uh Secretary of War Baker says no. Um they take this to the AMA, they want to support that there was partial support with the AMA. They were concerned about equal pay for equal work, if you will. They felt that if physicians happened to be women and they were accepted, they wanted them to be accepted fully, but Mm -hmm. they were not as enthusiastic about, you know, a complete acceptance of women and so as this, at the same time that this is going on, um women like Esther Lovejoy who are visiting France uh early on in the conflict also see the need for all female medical units. In other words, it's yeah, not yeah, for our services to the US government but while while all that's going on, we we see a real need to address uh civilian health care. This is you know, the 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 broad stage of public health, there could be mm-hmm. nothing more important. So it's not only addressing the care of the wounded, but the civilians and typhoid ep- epidemics. But why,
0: why did they why did they want all female medical units? Why not mixed in gender? that way, way units? Yeah. you could
1: show that women could do it. I see. And you're showcasing okay. women's service. I see. Um yeah. unaided
0: as, by uh, men. Yes, I see what you mean. Yeah.
1: So yeah, right, right. Yeah. So, um So so. Uh, the Medical Women's National Association sent uh, several groups, the American Women's Hospitals was their organization. Also, the National American Suffrage Association, uh, the Mainstream Suffrage Association, yeah. sponsored the Women's Overseas Hospital. So, again, suffrage and wartime service there, there's, there's that support. So, that's another uh, demonstration of the way in which uh, many women saw this as connected to. Uh, female citizenship, and so for the women physicians, it's about uh, claiming equality within the military, but also you know the idea that citizenship is is more than the vote. It's about professional equality. It's about having the opportunity to serve in the military if we wish to do that, but on equal terms with men. And in the meantime, uh, addressing these all-female units, particularly the Medical Women's National Association, but certainly all the groups that I saw talked about and worried about and were concerned about how to provide a response to the particular ways that war brought violence to women. Mm -hmm. And Esther Lovejoy, who made her visit to France early on, went to Paris. She said, the French midwives are doing just fine. They don't need American women to come over and take over and do their jobs. Mm -hmm. We can come and provide dispensaries. We can provide the support health care providers there, Uh um, we can address this. And so they addressed the problem of wartime rape, but also what it meant to be in an occupied condition Uh and what it meant to be returning to a home or having your home devastated so that malnutrition, uh, epidemic disease, poverty, all were ways that Mm. war violence Visited women and children, mm-hmm. particularly, so mm-hmm. they wanted to address that with those all-female medical mm-hmm.
0: units. I see. So, tell us how successful each of these groups were after the war in um, fulfilling their agenda.
1: In my, in my view,
0: that's the view we want. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: the post-war period because. Uh-huh. One of the things that happens is that there's a great fear about the potential violence of returning veterans
2: uh-huh.
1: male veterans uh-huh. and uh, part of one of the threads that we haven't talked about through this is the the idea that shell shock represented a The the psychological devastation was something that medical personnel and and social workers and others were were really worried about because Uh it was sort of uncertain what would happen, and perhaps it would create uh, what um, one person called the habits of violence after wartime. Uh So there's a great worry about that, and so there's a great deal of um, popular discussion and pressure and, of course, economic uh, decisions that are made to really... um, Reconstruct uh, women's roles, uh, that uh, so that they would not be preserving the gains in the workplace or within the military. Mm-hmm. And women really have this post-war bargain: if they want safety, they need to get married, and men need the jobs; they don't need them. So many of their claims, uh, in a broad sense, are reversed in the backlash uh, following the war. In terms of these three groups, um, women's positions were the most effective uh because they were able to establish these all female medical unions. Uh-huh. They did not achieve medical commissions but and they were very distraught about that. But they also, for example, the American Women's Hospitals continued under under the direction of Esther Lovejoy uh-huh. to become a very uh a significant contributor in post war medical relief and the Medical Women's
0: International Association of Uh, Sports. Esther Lovejoy sounds like quite a person. (laughs) She is, and she's my next topic. Oh, is she really? That's funny, because I was going to mention that. It sounds like a great topic for a biography. (laughs) Anyway, go ahead. Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. I really was thinking that. I was thinking that. I'm getting my plugs in early. Yeah, no. Anyway, um,
1: but I think they also, they were very disappointed because they believed that they had the credentials and that their claims for... Medical commissions and citizenship—the links there, and professional, you know, preparation were there. And so they, but they were arguing for. They were acting on behalf of civilian women in France, Mm -hmm. for example. And so, when they articulated an anti-violence and and talked about violence against women, it was not really about themselves. And Mm -hmm. so it was—they were—it was safer, if you will. And um, they. They did uh i think while not successful in their uh in their claims, they did lay the groundwork for uh the movement that would be successful for women in uh, in the second world war in terms of their goal of achieving mm-hmm. uh, officer status mm-hmm. but I think they also were very concerned about what what, what being a part of the military meant. Many women physicians, Lovejoy, for example, uh, turned very powerfully anti-war after the conflict. And mm-hmm. so there were ways in which, I think, they, in addressing violence against women in war through these all-female medical units... Uh, articulated a critique of militarism and a critique of of wars violence that I think had an important um, an important legacy
2: mm-hmm.
1: nurses received relative rank and so again that was a a halfway measure but I also think it's important because in their campaign, they linked a hostile working environment with Again uh, violence against women, and they linked the solution as a regular uh a, a official rank within the institution or at least some of them did, as a way to achieve that and so i think their their campaign is is an important um chapter in uh women's anti violence activism so mm-hmm. they um again i think it's their, it's not, it's important to know that they failed but also to understand how they made their arguments and they named the violence against women and thought okay. a, a way to remedy that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the women who uh, were part of the uh, paramilitary organizations mm-hmm. were the least successful, and I think that's because they were the most, the most threatening. Yeah. Uh, and they... Um, because they were not talking... In some ways, they were talking about uh, an enemy, and danger from an enemy, but they were also talking about domestic violence and mm-hmm. for women to be able to defend themselves and indeed to claim that right to defend themselves as part of citizenship is is uh, quite a powerful threat.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So they were, uh, I think, the, the most powerful backlash was against
0: them. Mm-hmm. I see. So just to conclude the story, for those of us who don't know, and I'm one of them, women get the vote in 21 or 22, is that correct?
1: um there were women uh about a dozen states in about a dozen states for example in Oregon in 1912 women achieved the vote uh-huh. full vote but uh the 19th amendment is ratified by the states in August of
0: 1920 uh-huh i see and then when do um when do women actually enter the military? When is the wax and the waves and these other things that At we might World be familiar? When are they? Yes, they're all created during World War II. Yes, hmm, that's very interesting. And so
1: again, there there are very important, very powerful questions about um, the impact of militarization on women. Mm-hmm. One of my uh, sort of essential reading on this uh, uh, is Cynthia Enloe and mm-hmm. her work on. Uh, militarization, and now certainly militarization and globalization. But Enloe's work is very thoughtful and very important in thinking about the ways that um, women have been militarized, both inside and outside of the military. Mm-hmm. And so World War II is the site for that. And and in some ways, um, world, the First World War represents... The first real bureaucratic war. For Mm -hmm. example, uh, Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, in the First World War, finds a loophole so that women are uh, recruited for the Navy and Marine Corps as clerks, as office workers. The idea is that they will free men for combat. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And in some ways, I guess I just want to return to that idea that in some ways, if it's the case that women come to the military because they're, they're freeing men for combat or shaming men into mm-hmm. military service, uh, I think it's clear why there might be a very strong backlash against that because that's mm-hmm. you know a very powerful way in which it's sending men to to danger mm-hmm. and then creating mm-hmm. more danger for men.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, in any case. Uh, so there's that World War I precedent, but World War II, uh, the great mobilization that happened, and also the duration of the conflict, plus the context and the foundation that the work of these women in the First World War had established, I think, is the reason for that.
0: Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Is there a uh, book that you could recommend on the mobilization of women during World War Two to our audience? Is there, has people written about this?
1: Yes, Lisa Meyer's book, Creating GI Jane, uh huh, yeah, I see,
2: would be my
0: recommendation. Okay, uh, well, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time today, and we really appreciate it. It's a fascinating book. Uh, the book is Mobilizing Minerva: American Women in the First World War, which has just come out from the University of Illinois Press. And as is our, um, as is our normal practice here on new books in history, uh, let me ask you this: What are you working on now? Actually, we already know the answer to that question, but go ahead.
1: You know the answer. <laughs> uh, As I was completing uh, some work on this book, I found that Esther Lovejoy's papers had just been, well, they'd been processed at the Oregon Health and Science University Archives Uh in 2001. Uh And so I've been among the first scholars to look at her papers. Her papers also are at the um, Drexel University College of Medicine, the, the uh, Philadelphia Archive, where the women's uh,
2: uh,
1: medical college used to be. At any rate, Lovejoy's biography offers me an opportunity to situate her as an early medical woman. She was Portland's city health officer from 1907 to 1909, the first woman
2: uh-huh.
1: to be a health officer in a city that large. She uh-huh. was an Oregon suffragist. She uh, was active in World War One, as we've seen. Uh, she became a historian of women in medicine, but also she directed the American Women's Hospitals, which had been formed, as we've read, by, you know, in World War One. After the war, she transformed it into a without borders medical relief organization and used her role as one of the organizers and founders of the Medical Women's International Association to try to. She had a theory of international health in which women physicians would have a strong role in promoting peace by promoting healthy communities and policies that mm-hmm. would lead to that. So she's very much a part of that transnational activism of women following well, World War One.
0: What a fantastic talk. And
1: she worked with papers, Mira LaBevita, who was the uh, director of the... Um, Office for Protection of Motherhood and Children in the New Soviet
0: Union. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. A lot of yeah, no, that's amazing. No, It sounds like a terrific topic. You know, I've always personally wanted to write a biography. Is it going to be a biography? Is it going to be a study of her and her time? It's
2: going to be a biography I'm, life
0: and times. Yes. I am so uh, envious of you, I can't even begin to say. Uh, I've always wanted to write a biography, but um, I don't think I'm really up to the task. Also, the period in which I study, or I used to study, I suppose, it's basically impossible to write anybody's biography because there just isn't n- enough known about any so I'm I'm green here in Iowa with NV because wow. <laughs> Esther sounds like Esther Lovejoy sounds like an absolutely terrific topic, and we look forward to seeing that book in a few years. Uh, Marshall, then, thank you very much. And when you finish it, we'll interview you again, and we can continue our topic about uh, we continue our discussion thank about you. Esther Esther Lovejoy. Okay. Thank you. Well, anyway, uh, Kim, thank you very much for being on the, the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. All right. You. Okay. Well, you take care now. All right. Bye okay, bye. You've been listening to an interview with Kim Jensen, author of Mobilizing Minerva, American Women in the First World War. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. We'll talk to you next week.